Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Today, I'm here with Wendy Dixonson. She is a business coach, and we're going to talk about businesses and what it takes to sell one. And thank you for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. I'm really excited to be here. This is a topic that I am very passionate about. So I'm glad to have the opportunity and welcome any questions or contact from your listeners. Awesome. Awesome. So I was looking you up a little bit this morning and going through some stuff. You've been in the space for a while and uh, you got a lot of cool experience inside of there. So sounds like one of the things I did notice is you started off or have some experience as a therapist. Let's just do this. Let's do what we do on all these shows. I always jokingly say you were born and now you ended up on a show about mergers and acquisitions. Can you fill out the gap in between? We don't have to start off with I was a baby, but <laughs> could you give us a, like, how did you end up in the mergers and acquisitions space? And let's look at your origin story. Sure. And I have to tell you, that would be a lot to fill in if I went from day one to today. However, there are a couple of things that contributed to being here now. First of all, my dad was an iron worker. He was a high rise steel worker and found when, after he had four kids, that he was spending more time on strike than he was actually spending working. So he was one of those guys that could do just about anything. If he wanted to build something, he figured it out, he made it happen. So when that, in his ironwork career, when he reached that point where he was seriously financially strapped with being on strike so much, he started his own construction company. It was a lot of fun for him. He was one of those people that was a natural leader he enjoyed people, enjoyed being around the guys that he worked with and for. And uh, the problem was he really didn't have anybody in his life, Ron, that had ever had their own business. And he didn't know what he didn't know. It was one of those situations that unfortunately came back to bite him in the rear end. He was building the biggest house he had ever built. And the prospective owner came through made a bunch of changes. They did not put anything in writing. They just put a handshake on it. And then when it came to closing, the owner refused to pay. And so unfortunately, that was the beginning of a chain of events that my dad ended up losing our home. He lost his marriage. It had a devastating impact on his kids. So just to give your listeners an idea of what happened from there, he was one of those people that really could land on his feet. And he ended up, he'd also taught himself to fly. He had traded jobs for flying lessons. And by the time he died, he was flying freight for DHL, racehorses and all kinds of crazy stuff all over the place. But 
that experience of seeing what my dad didn't know and how it not only hurt him, but it hurt all of us was made quite an impression on me. So then fast forward, I trained to become a therapist. I really enjoyed the work, loved the people and was in an interesting area because at the time there weren't a lot of therapists in private practice. So I worked for a community organization and we had the opportunity to see people from across the spectrum as far as socioeconomic groups were concerned. And then my husband and I, with another couple, had the opportunity to start a company. And they had the idea, we had some capital, and so we pulled all of our resources and from day one, I mean, the first moment, Ron, we sat down at that kitchen table and said we wanted to do this. We knew that we wanted to grow the business to sell it. And it was not about reaching a particular revenue stream. It was about when would it be ready to sell? When it reached a certain stage of growth, how would we know? We were looking for those signposts. And the other thing we decided when we committed to one another, that's what we were going to do, is that we wanted to be friends even when the business was over with. And I can tell you that's a tricky thing. So we, from the very beginning, said that we wanted to start this business, to grow it, to sell it. We wanted to walk away friends. And we looked for a way to make both of those things happen. And what we did was we chose our target acquirer. So everything we did was based on what we thought that prospective buyer would want. So those are the two things that I believe contributed a great deal to becoming a business coach. And I got out of becoming being a therapist because I did not appreciate how much and how often insurance companies dictated the treatment and the course of treatment a client was going to get. Yeah, I looked into, you can buy certain things, but you can't buy others, right? So you cannot buy a medical organization or a chiropractic organization or a dental or even a veterinarian organization unless you're a licensed professional. But you can set up what's called an MSO, a medical service organization. And I like the rules. If you really look into that, it's a shame that they don't apply the same rules that they would apply to me as an owner of a medical organization and what's called an MSO to the insurance companies, right? Because they basically, in, inside of there, what it says is you can own the building, you can own the facility, you can hire the doctors and stuff, but you can never tell them how to treat their patients. You can't tell them what medicines, the tools, you can say what equipment you're going to buy. But other than that, you have no say over what they do in that in their licensed profession. And I think insurance companies should be the same way. They should have no say what a licensed professional does because they're just not licensed professionals in that realm. It's a shame that really happens. What kind of business was it? It was at that time when people were transitioning from hard copy documents to digital. And so the business was called Document Warehouse. And mm -hmm. we were really fortunate because we chose Iron Mountain as our target acquirer. And they yeah. were the ones who bought us. Oh, that's cool. So you did yeah. document scanning or storage? Both. Both the scan and store. Okay. That's a yeah. cool business. It's kind of an advanced version of 
storage and with the digital aspect to it, I like the business model because the recurring model of it, of the storage side of it, you get a little yeah. bit of recurring revenue. So Iron Mountain was the acquirer. That's awesome. So a lot of times it's good. It's almost always good to kind of pick an ideal. Like this is the company that would acquire me. It gives you guidance, right? I think everybody, yes. I think all businesses should do, have two things. One is like, this is the business I think will acquire me when I'm done doing what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. So they know what to grow to kind of helps a lot of the decisions, what software to choose, what accounting programs you should have. You try to figure out what the big guys are using, the ones that will acquire you. So it's a less of an impact when you do decide to exit. And the second thing I think everybody needs is the arch enemy. They need to know that like they're trying to be X, Y, and Z company at this or that, because it gives them a sense of competition. It gives people... Back when I was at Excite.com and we were head to head with Yahoo and Google was still a college kid's dream. There was this friendly rivalry. We stole employees from each other. There were people that worked for us that had license plates that said Yahoo sucked. It was kind of this thing that went back and forth. It causes a little bit of drive. But I think that knowing your acquirer is a great idea. But most of the time, I'll be honest, I don't think most of the time that businesses end up selling to their desired acquirer. So you did a good job. You built, You really built something they wanted. Yeah. And I agree with you that a lot of people don't do that. And then second of all, the chances of actually selling to the target acquirer are pretty low, but overall, at least here in Virginia, it's the statistics for businesses that go up for sale, only about 18% actually succeed. And from there, you've got about another 20 that might be considered successful So I feel like those stats and others really contribute to making the case for figure out who would be the perfect buyer. Would it be a private equity investor? Would it be someone else, a competitor perhaps? Would it be someone who is, has a particular area of knowledge or passion for what your business happens to be, but whatever that is, create as many scenarios as you can so that your business will appeal to as many buyers as possible. It's interesting. I know a couple of people who really subscribe to the model of run your business as if it's for sale from day one. And they mm-hmm. keep a deal room available where they have all the like the documents and everything. They keep them updated. They update them. One of the guys does it monthly. The other guy does it quarterly. But their whole point is any given time, if something happened to one of them, you can go into his deal room and learn everything you needed to learn about that business to keep it running. Because yeah. he built it as if he was going to sell it. Even though it's in year two of something, it'll probably be a seven years, five to seven years, I think, before you can really sell it. It wasn't something he acquired to grow. It's something he's building from scratch. And to acquire the customer base is going slower than he expected. So that said, what else is inside of this realm of structuring a business that it can sell? What were your daily activities like when you know you're going to sell it at the other end? How did it change things, I guess, is the word I'm looking for? Well... I think probably with a partnership in particular, it helped so much in decision-making. So it was not about who was right or wrong. It was about what would Iron Mountain want. And so you're going back to your point about the acquaintance that you have who, you know, has built their, his business as though it's for sale every day. I think that the value in that is the discipline that it takes to continually update, to make sure that you're personal finances and your business finances are separate, that you are following certain accounting practices like an annual review and a compilation and that kind of thing, as well as that the data collection. I don't think that we understand 
how important it is to document the ups and downs in our business cycle. So for example, if you know that in seven years, you'd like to sell your business, which by the way, five to seven years is about the period of time that a private equity group holds their investment in a company. So if you're in that habit of, of creating not only the data room, as you said, but the documentation, updating the metrics, you could also add documentation about what's contributed to the various increases and decreases in revenue. Is it cyclical? Is it across the industry? Is it something like the pandemic that hit? And then what are the steps that you took to come out of it? All of those things contribute to the story of your business. And it gives a prospective buyer the sense of the history of that business, not because they're going to do it the same way that you did it, right? But because it allows them to see how resilient the business is and what to expect, right? So if, for example, you know that your business, because you have the data, not because it's just something an idea that you have in your head, but if you know that your quote unquote slow time is July and August, well, and you're outgrowing your, growing your space, then maybe it makes sense to move in July and August. So it's interesting. I had a client who was really interested in trying to grow their business, to increase revenue. And the client told me when this person felt like the highs and lows of the business are throughout a calendar year. Okay. So she began to design this entire calendar of events and things that she was going to do based on what she had said to me. And then as part of the growth, she hired someone who was able to assemble her data. We took a look at the data, analyzed it. And I got to tell you, Ron, she managed to hit one high in the business cycle correctly in a calendar year. All the rest, she was off about a month, which meant that entire calendar of events that she had designed for the upcoming year was off. Yeah, I used to have a real estate investment group and we bought bank foreclosures. We bought them from the bank. We negotiated short sales. We had a couple of different companies we work with that we bought houses from companies that negotiated short sales. And there were two times in the year we knew that we just probably wouldn't get a yes or a closing from about yeah. November. I want to say about the after the first week of November. So after the seventh until about Christmas. And then usually we'd get crazy business. Like we'd go out and raise money during that time because we knew Around Christmas Eve or Christmas, we'd get about six or seven. Yes, if you can close before the end of the year because they wanted them off their books. So the, the banks wanted certain houses off the books. So we'd go out and raise money. And we just knew we'd, we could take our vacations during that time. We just knew we wouldn't get anything. Nothing was happening during that time frame. And then when we were buying houses from individuals, nobody wants to move during that time frame either. So you just know, like, you, I think if we had just had to, if you'd asked either one of us what the exact dates were, We'd been real fuzzy. I put on a calendar every day. Every time we got an approval, it went on the calendar. So I know what days we were getting yeah. approval. And you can track that over a couple of years of doing it. You can go, okay, well, there seems to be this weird lull between these days, especially on the banking side. When I first got into this space, I was doing a lot of evaluations. And I used to ask all these small business owners. When I say small business, I'm not talking about the big world PE version of small business, which is anything under half a billion dollars or anything. When right. I say small business, I'm talking about $20 million in revenue and below. So mostly $5 million purchase price and, and below because I was looking at SBA loan type of stuff. 
And I quit asking business owners about cash flow analysis because most of them didn't even know what it was. Even their CPAs, to be honest, I had a lot of CPAs were like, oh, just ask my CPA for everything you need. And once I started talking to him, like, how do you have a cash flow analysis? They're like, what exactly are you looking for? I'm looking for the cyclical of cash flow of your business. I want to know when the highs and lows are. In all honesty, I kind of want to see how they manage their inventory based on how they manage their cash flow. Different things inside of the data. And that's just me being a nerd to some extent, but. I think that's you doing your due diligence. (laughs) Well, a lot of businesses just don't have it. We can build it from their data. We ask for bank statements and other stuff. You can build it. You can build your own. Just it's not easy because it's not yours. So you're missing things. I don't think I've seen, and we evaluated a lot because I was in part of a big roll-up. Yeah, and that goes back to looking at when to sell, right? When does it make sense to sell your company? And I have to encourage your listeners to understand that it's not like a real estate closing where you put your house on the market and in a hot market, you've got five offers in 12 hours and you're going to decide who you're going to choose the next day, and then bam, Mm -hmm. it's done. I really liken it instead of a race, it's more like a marathon. And it's incredibly important that you put certain things in place, that your people are up to speed, that everybody knows in what direction and at what pace they need to be making decisions and moving so that the owner can focus on whatever is involved in the transaction, looking for prospective buyers, working with intermediaries, working with their advisors, while the management team is back making sure the business hits its numbers. And so when is it good to sell? Again, look at your timeline, look at your cash flow analysis, figure out if your business is tanking, that's not the time to sell it's going to be a fire sale. On the other hand, if your business is on this trajectory and you happen to know that in the beginning stages, I'm going to go back to that July, August slowdown period for any business. So if we know here it is June next month and the month after my slow times, maybe this is when I'm going to hire a business broker to begin to look at selling my company. So I might spend July choosing my business broker, letting my accountant know that I'm going to look move forward to sell the business. This is what a prospective buyer is likely to need. I might get in touch with my business attorney, right? So this is going to happen. So I can spend July and August doing the things that I need to do to be ready. And so that when September hits and my business is picking back up again, I'm able to turn a lot of the day-to-day things over to my broker or to my investment banker, depending on how big my company is. So if that's the case, then use the slow time to, to get set up and to do the things that you need to do to successfully manage the transaction, but also to make sure that your business continues to run. Yeah, a lot of times, a lot of people think that there's going to be this, like you were saying, this hot market, and there's going to be 10 offers, and they're going to get to select the best one. If your business is under probably 10 to $20 million, if you can't get an investment maker to sell your business, you're probably not going to get to do the auction process. I see that happening a lot for businesses big enough that they have an investment banker. They're doing $10 million revenue, $20 million in revenue, or somewhere in that realm or above. The investment banker, they love that. They love doing the auction process. That's mm-hmm. their game. 
they'll actually spend money and time and effort to go out and reach out to cold reach out to potential buyers, line a bunch of them up. But you, a lot of small business owners, just they don't qualify for that amount of attention because it's time consuming. And to be honest, I don't know if you want it. If you're a small business owner, it's a lot of work to have that. I mean, you really have to have your ducks in a row when five people are evaluating because they're going to beat you up if one thing's out of whack. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I think that in most cases, people can benefit from having a business broker if they're in the small scale. Just because the business broker handles the tire kickers, you don't get people who are wasting your time. You don't get people who will never in a million years line up the financing to buy the business anyway. And so I think the business broker has the best opportunity to at least get you more than one buyer. And again, I'm just shocked by the number of people who decide that they're going to DIY that whole process. And it's, it is a specialization. It is something that people train to do. It is something that you as a business owner don't know what you don't know. I'm going to go back to my dad who didn't understand about what he needed to do and how he needed to have a codicil or something to the addendum to the contract that he had with that client. I think that if you're going to sell your company and you are serious about it, and especially if you are hoping to fund your retirement or have some other idea of what you want to do with the proceeds, in other words, your business is something more than just pocket change to you, I think you ought to take it seriously. I think you ought to get that help. And you ought to talk to more than one. Don't base it on whether you like the person. Base it on you like them and they have a long line of very satisfied clients. It takes something to sell the business. Like you were talking earlier, less than 20% of all businesses ever listed even sell. And a lot of that, I'm not being mean here, a lot of it's on the broker. It just absolutely is. For a multitude of reasons, they might be taking on businesses that are just not quite ready and not sellable. They haven't mm-hmm. put in the groundwork to two to three years of prep minimum, four to five, like we were talking earlier, probable and six or seven likely <laughs> of years mm-hmm. making that business sellable. The other thing is a lot of times the business owners, business brokers aren't strong enough, meaning they're not willing to tell a business owner, I know you want $2 million for your business. It just isn't worth that. Here's right. the current valuation. So they'll list things way above. Thinking the owner will eventually come down instead of just standing up to him and saying, hey, in the current status of your business, it's worth X. But there's a multitude of different reasons. So as the business owner, you're looking for a broker, the chance, will he be honest with you and tell you if you're out of line? Does he have the experience in the database and the track record to get it done? And does he have the team, right? Because it takes a little bit of a team. Somebody on their team needs to look at your financials and understand your financials and make recommendations, whether you're doing your own books or you have an accountant. Like, hey, here's the changes we need to make over this listing period to make it more valuable, make it more in line with what sellers are looking for or buyers are looking for. I think that we can actually spread it around because I think that the onus for that starts with the business owner. If the business owner has not put a system into place where someone else could step in and run it, then that's on the business owner. If the business owner has not manage to maintain books that are separate from their personal finances, that's on the business owner. Now, here we go again. If the business owner is ready to sell, they feel like their books are clean, they have a good idea of what their business is worth, then it's time to interview brokers. It's not time just to hire whichever one, right? 
many of the points you brought up are correct. There is a school of thought where business brokers will tell the owner an elevated valuation just because they know that's what the owner wants to hear. Thinking that once they get into the process and they see that there are three offers that are much less than what the owner had hoped for, then, oh, well, that's taken care of. If, on the other hand, you have a broker who says, I respect that that's what you would like to have, but here's what you can reasonably expect, that is a much, to me, a much more comfortable relationship. From there, you have to look at your attorney. Has your attorney ever sold a business before? Do they, as part of their practice, help with those things? Because I've seen attorneys kill deals. I mean, absolutely. A small deal, you do not need a 20 or 25 page purchase of sale. That's crazy. Yeah, the difference between your average purchase and sales contract can really vary, right? Yes. For instance, for one of the things we were looking for, we put one forward, it was probably five, six pages deep. It was pretty adequate for the roll up that we were doing for marketing agencies because it was very complicated. And we were doing, like, we were only getting paid on the uplift. I'm going to say terms that most of you guys don't understand, but I'm not going to go into explaining them. But we were only getting paid on the uplift. So we had a waterfall waterfall accounting mechanism inside of there. So yeah. our purchase and sales agreements were, I want to say, I think at one point it was 68 to 80 pages. Yeah, um, they can be really long. And again, as you said, it depends on the business. But for the most part... You have to make sure that your attorney has the experience because otherwise I think you, it kills the deal when you are just wading through these revision after revision after revision. Ugh. Right. And then it kills the deal. Like I love that you said not all attorneys are mergers and acquisitions attorneys. The guy that set up your LLC, had you set up your family trust and all the other stuff you have your family attorney do is not the guy that should be selling your business. They don't even understand reps and warranties. If they're in a bigger firm and they have somebody in-house that does that stuff, that's great. But every community, I mean, businesses have been around since the dawn of time, since we were cavemen rolling stones and trading seashells for something. Business has been around long enough. There's an established mergers and acquisition attorney in every community. There's somebody in your town that helps with the purchase and sales of businesses. So a lot of times that call you see when you like, when do I call my attorney or like one of the calls is call the attorney. That first call to your attorney is, Hey, do you have anybody on your team that specializes in mergers and acquisitions? Or can you give me a referral to somebody who does? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The other thing I want to point out as far as when you are going to sell your business that I think is super important is don't just keep it to yourself. Have a chat with your partner. Whether it's a life partner or a business partner or right. both, right? You also want to probably have a chat with your kids. You and I were talking in a previous conversation about how important it is for an owner to prepare themselves by separating their identity from their business. But a lot of times that's true for the person's spouse as or partner and also true for their kids. So I think it needs to be a conversation. And I will tell you that I've seen owners who decide they've had enough, they can't do anymore. Their last kid is graduating from college. They're about to be an empty nester. They've got another kid that's getting ready to get married. So they've got that going on. Oh, by the way, and their spouse is retiring and they're taking care of a whatever or whomever. And it's just like the perfect storm every single stressful thing that could be happening in this person's life is about to happen. 
and they want to sell you their business. And it's like, whoa, 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 let's wait. <laughs> let's get you through some of that. I love that you said you've been talking to your significant other and your partner and stuff. There's an identity crisis for most people. It really is. Uh, I know when I got, when I walked away from the, I sold or walked away, I transferred half the assets to my business partner, the real estate thing. We did it because the market was shutting down and the market was getting super hot. Foreclosures are going away and we specialize. Our business was called Tulsa Foreclosure Center. <laughs> we specialize in stopping short sales and foreclosures and from the 2008 crash all the way until 2017. And the market got so hot, we just, there wasn't enough business and the banks had negotiated the banks knew it was hot and they just quit giving us deals on houses. Well, when we first started the business, we'd average ten, fourteen thousand dollars per transaction just to wholesale them off to somebody else or clean them up a little bit and sell them. That was our minimum. At the end of the business, we'd be lucky after working for six months, twelve months, eighteen months negotiating to purchase a house and putting all that time and effort in to make three or four grand. You start doing the number of hours and the math on it, it's like, okay, we're averaging about twenty twenty dollars per man hour on these deals. I can make more money being a door reader at Home Depot in a good city and take a lot less risk. But when I left there, it wasn't identity thing because I've been doing that for a long, long time. And I knew I wasn't going back into it because there's also a weight that goes along with constantly being around people who are extremely distressed, losing their homes. Right. We were counselors more than anything. A lot of times we were advocates for them. We would help them fill out complaints to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and fight it. A lot of times we got to help them keep their houses. Those were just beautiful occasions. But for every hundred houses we came across, we might get help. Two people were capable of keeping it. So, but when you move on from one thing to another, that you know that's your lifestyle. I'll be honest, I was kind of lost for a little while there. I spent a year or two just doing exploration into self-help things like going to Tony yeah. Robbins courses, going to the other ones and just like working on me for a while. Like, okay. Let's just work on me for a little while. But how do you say people should prepare themselves for that? Like this is going to be a lot more disruptive than you're imagining. And you should have a plan for that and know what you're doing next and really have a lot of activity, especially in the first few weeks of going from one to the next. Really have a lot of activities planned out and things that are going on that you can build a new identity upon. Well, I'll tell you the ideal scenario. And I will also admit that it never works this way. Almost. Yeah. So I really, when I work with people and again, it's partly, it's my therapist background, right? I'm not a therapist any longer. I've given up those credentials, but I mean, it's part of who I am. I bring that training. And what I know is that it's really hard to make those identity changes. And so in an ideal world, when I start working with someone, we create an operating system for that company. We look at what's the vision and do they have the right people in the right seats and what are the KPIs and are all of the processes documented and what are the issues that are part of the industry? What are the issues that are part of this particular group of people who are working together? And through that, Ron, we're looking to create and empower a management team and I use that loosely, right? Because we can have a small company that's family owned and the management team are people in the family, right? But it's still a management team. And so what we look at is how can we empower those people? How can the people who are in charge of different decisions or different areas of the company also be in charge of the decisions 
around that? And how can they make sure that those decisions are in support of the ultimate vision for the company? And what I do is when I or my my team are working with this group of people, we're looking at the ways that the owner can begin to separate themselves. So if that means we have a meeting once a week and the team goes around and everybody's looking at their goals and they're looking at the to-do list from last week and any issues that came up. And by the way, let's look at the company dashboard. And is this all, you know, again, in support of the ultimate goal or vision? And then where are the places that the owner just couldn't resist jumping in again? And then we get to pull them back. Like, all right, yes, you are really good at X and someone else is making a lot of mistakes, but this is their opportunity to learn and your opportunity to go and explore a new hobby or a new passion. It's part of, let's all agree on the vision, create this operating system that will allow the company to operate independently of the owners. And in some cases, I have several clients that they particularly like a couple of things. And so, yeah, by all means, let's keep doing those things. But in the meantime, you don't have to do everything. I'm curious how many times you see the same thing I see. I see cases where people do all this. They know they're done. They're burnout. The reason they're selling is because they're burnout. Usually they're in their the 40s or 50s or younger. So they're not retiring out. They're just like, I'm right. done. I'm burned out with this. They go through this process, the process that you're talking about. They're documenting, farming off everything they don't like first, farming off some of the stuff they do like to free up time to explore new opportunities and stuff. And then now this thing is running smooth and they do the, I always say it, the two day, two week, two month process, take two days off in the middle of the week, Thursday, Friday, and give yourself a four day weekend. How did the company go? What got done? You empower people to make decisions without you. How did it go? Then do two weeks, right? A month or two later. And you tell everybody in two months from now, I'm taking these two weeks off so everybody can ramp up and get done. And then when I say two months, it's two, two one month periods in the same year. Look, I'm taking the month of December off. This is yours. And choose a medium month. I wouldn't say if you're dead still in December, that's not the month. That's not fair to them. It's not fair to you. It's not a growth opportunity. But don't pick your peak month either when it's all hands on deck. Pick two medium months where, you know, you think they can make it without you. And literally, it's like, hey, if the place isn't burning down, you can't call me. Yeah. And I want to, I just want to jump in and say that you're spot on there. And what I tell my clients is you want to welcome whatever comes up because mm-hmm. that's going to tell us. What else needs to be done before your time with the company is over? Yeah. After all that, the point I was going to get to is after all that, they step back and go, it's kind of the used car mentality or the new car mentality. You go out and have your, right before you sell your car, you go get your car decaled and serviced because you want the highest retail or trade-in value. So you get your car detailed, you have it cleaned, you have all the little minor ticks and clicks fixed. And you're diving around in the car waiting and take it to the dealership and go, wait a second, this isn't so bad right now. I don't have a payment on it. And I joke around because I drive beaters. Everybody's asking me, you know, with what you do and what you make, why don't you drive nicer cars? I said, because cars are a horrible investment. But uh, there's this new car, new old car mentality that can happen inside of these business owners. They fix all these things. They're not pulling 80 hour weeks anymore. They only needed a couple hour weeks for advisement. And they may not need to sell. They may be able to go into retirement and have a little bit of that identity and fulfillment still there because they stop by once a week and sign a few checks and play the chairman of the board as opposed to the daily operator. 
I completely agree with you. I think so often in our society, not only are we driven to equate our self-worth with whatever number of hours or tasks we have on our to-do list, but also we tend to engage in either or thinking like I've either got to sell it or I'm going to drop dead in it. And what you just said is the and you can create a business or get your business to the point where it is able to be fairly self-sustaining and you can then choose when and if you will exit. I thought about doing a little segment on this show because you're talking about their personal identities and stuff. I thought about doing a segment of the show where I, I fire up a portable mic and I just walk up to people in the street and I say, who are you? I'm Ronald Skelton. Who are you? My current gut feeling is that I would say nine out of 10 people, 90% of the people will tell you what they do. I'm yeah. John. I'm an accountant. When you yeah. ask somebody who they are, most people will respond with what they do. And we all do it. We all tie our identities to, if I said, what's your name? They're going to say, it's John, Wendy. Mm -hmm. If I say, what's your name? You'll say, Wendy. Now, if I say, hey, Wendy, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Almost always, it's going to go straight to what you do is maybe because maybe I'm a little biased because I'm on the business side. People think I want to know about business, but I would think more often than not, I think I could do it in a t-shirt and shorts in the most unbusiness professional setting I can, a pair of joggers, sweats, and a hoodie. <laughs> and walk yeah, up to people and say, hey, who are you? And they wouldn't tell me that they were a mother and wife, a grandmother, all the really cool things that people are. Mm -hmm. They would tell us, oh, I'm an accountant or I'm a retired accountant. I think it's part of a, the society. Maybe it's a U.S. thing. I think it's part of our society to tie what we do as part of who we are. I agree. And I'm not sure that is really the healthiest thing for us. I also don't think it's necessarily the healthiest thing for our businesses. Right. I think our businesses need to have an identity that's separate from us. Absolutely. In a lot of cases, I don't know how possible it is. Like for a podcast, there's a podcast right now that I really, I buy newsletters and I would buy other podcasts if I can make them work. There's one I'm really looking at. He's a little overpriced. He's like a seven X, but I want $15 million for a company that does two point something a year in revenue or profit, even but that said, some businesses, you just got to really be careful. If I ever wanted to sell this, I'd really have to bring in secondary hosts and, and prove the audience is more interested in the story than they are the host. Right? Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely. Okay. Well, I do think that's an interesting point. And I will say that I'm in a networking group and some of the people have been in the, the group for, I don't know, 20 years or something. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how difficult it is when we know someone if we're going to refer to them, we want to refer to that owner as opposed to the owner's company. And so that's why I feel like, and now we're kind of going full circle back to your acquaintance who runs his business as though it's for sale every day. I think that's a really smart way to do it because you're building a company. And then hopefully when you get to the point where you're large enough, it will be it just uh, an everyday matter to have people to refer to the business as opposed to you as the owner. Yeah. The business networking one's an interesting thing. You don't usually see bigger businesses inside of them. I played that role for a long time. I was a marketing coach, a business coach myself for oh, a long okay. time. I was actually one of Jay Conrad Levinston's uh, gorilla marketing author. I was wow. one of his coaches for a while. So I was a, I have a master's degree in MBA in marketing. I was a certified guerrilla marketing coach for his program and do seminars and stuff for him. That said, 
I did a lot of business networking, then you don't see the 10, 20, 30 million dollar revenue companies in those just because the way they're set up, it's usually the business owner in there meeting every week. I tried the other way. I have a little pest control company I own. I hired a VA just for the purpose of going to all my networking meetings because especially during COVID, they're they're all online, right? So I just hired somebody over there and the referrals just dropped way off almost completely because they're like, oh, this is just somebody that works there. I don't know what the problem was. Maybe they thought they couldn't reciprocate. She did a really good job of telling me what my people and what the people in the room needed. And I still went out and looked to fulfill those needs. But I don't know how business networking would play into if you're trying to sell it and you got to move yourself out of it and you're still using that for the small networking events the BNIs and the different clubs out there to grow your business? Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where you've got to adjust your tactics as your business Mm -hmm. grows, for sure. I do think, though, that from the very beginning, it's a good idea to create an operating system where the business, you you create an identity for the business that's Mm -hmm. separate from you than Mm -hmm. in the beginning. Yeah. So what are the key elements? What do you think? You've been a probably you've been in the business coaching world as long as I've been in this space. What do you think the qualification, like what are the key elements of you need X, Y, and Z in place before you consider any type of succession? I'm selling it to, I think you're doing somebody a disservice if you leave them a business, you know, go through the same process, right? So if you leave your son, your landscaping business doing two and a half million dollars a year, and you don't go through this process as if you were selling it, you're not doing him any favors. I um, completely agree with that. So. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I actually do work with family businesses as well. It's a huge source of conflict for a family business when there isn't an operating system, when you don't have a business that is is sustainable, that it empowers the decision makers and for that authority to be shared amongst the people who are in key positions. I feel like there are things that business owners can do to ready that next generation should you decide that you're going to pass the business on. But I agree with you. I really believe that an owner does the business a disservice if it does not create a sustainable entity that can operate independently of the owner. Yeah. So uh, I've been an entrepreneur for as long as I can remember. You know, as a kid, I mowed lawns. My dad was a painter and he worked at a paint manufacturing company. My mom was absolutely a genius. She could do anything. I remember at one point in her time in her life, she was an accountant. And another part of the time of her life, she was working for a place called Nelson Marine Products. And she was doing the wiring harnesses for inside of breaker boxes for nuclear powered submarines. But uh, my dad was the entrepreneurial one. If he wanted something, he'd go paint a few houses and make the money to get it. But uh, at 16, he turned that business over to me with a painting company. So uh, he realized I was old enough to work. If I could get bit by a dog and go back to work, I could climb a ladder. So uh, anyway... I ran that until the time I was 20 and we had no systems and processes. We had no accounting. Not that I could remember, right? Money went into the bank account. It came in, we spent it. We had a CPA that would fix everything about once every six months. He would argue with us and tell us to quit doing this or do this differently. And then he would do our taxes at the end of the year. And that's how we ran the thing. It wasn't until I got out and started going to college and doing some other stuff to realize that there was anything else. And a lot of these business owners, that's what they've, that's what they've done. They went out and did something on the side as a necessity to make some money. And then they never were taught accounting proper practices, 
hell, a lot of professionals, chiropractors come out of college a lot. I mean, as licensed professionals, doctors come out as licensed professionals, never been taught a single thing about running right. a business. So it, I don't expect small business owners to have their ducks in a row if they don't already have an advisor or broker or somebody helping them. Well, I'm going to make a recommendation that for those people, it wouldn't hurt to read a couple of books or even listen to them on Audible. I'm going to suggest Traction and the E-Myth Revisited. And uh, even if you just do those two, I'm going to throw in the 12-week year as well. Those three, you'd have a great handle. I'm a big fan of EOS and Traction. I've actually had their CEO here on the show. The other one I would throw on top of that is The Great Game of Business. There's a book called The Great Game of Business. I've had them on here too. Brilliant. They complement each other too, to some extent. So The Great Game of Business and the EOS, the Traction book, are business operating systems that complement each other. So the great game of business is about employing every, empowering every single employee to know their absolute value and role in the company and how it contributes to the underlying bottom line. So you teach everybody financials and uh, to the higher, to a high level financials, not like in the grain of things, but everybody understands that what their widgets are producing impacts in the company and uh, they make a game out of it. They call it the great game of business because they gamify the whole process. That's been around for many, many years, very popular. And they've rolled up, I think they're out 60-something acquisitions. The founders of that have their own holding company where they've acquired companies and they turn them around. And in one of the toughest industries, I think they have a 2.5% profit margin. They do remanufactured hardware, rebuild tractors. They basically, in automotive and tractors and stuff, they refurbish parts and sell them. Low profit margin, high competition. They manage to, to get it done because of the way they run their operating system. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I will say the other one that I really like is Pinnacle and that's by Greg Cleary and Steve Prada, who used to be EOS implementers and then developed, took that system in another direction. I'll check that one out. That's one I haven't read. So Pinnacle. Okay. How people get a hold of you. We're getting close to the top of the hour. Let's talk about how do people reach out to you? What services do you provide? And uh, let's make sure everybody knows how to work with Wendy. Yes. Well, thank you. So email Wendy at Ascend Coaching Solutions with an S on the end.com. And then my number 804-372-7575. I'm on Eastern time. And at Ascend, we provide executive coaching, team coaching, leadership training and development. And those services center around succession planning, strategic planning, but then also implementing business operating systems. Awesome. Awesome. So if somebody can remember like three key takeaways from today's show, what would you want them to remember, remember of you and your key lessons for them? Decide how you want to exit your business. That's number one. And number two, create a business operating system within your company. And number three, keep your life partner up to date. Let them know what you're doing, what you're going through. Make sure that those lines of communication are open because it helps so much in planning your exit. Awesome. Well, I thank you for being here on the show today. It was a pleasure getting to know you, getting to, to learn from you a little bit here. And is there any last things you want to say before we call it a show? No, but Ronald, thanks so much for the invitation. I've enjoyed our conversation and I'm really so grateful that you are able to provide this opportunity for your listeners so that they can start to think about their exits. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show. We'll call that a show. Great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. 
Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000-plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software-as-a-service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now